0: I just want to say, it's been such an honor for me uh, to be here and to be part of Covenant EFC. About six and a half years ago, almost seven years ago, six and a half, seven years ago, I walked into the doors of Covenant EFC here for the very first time, and my life was changed. So for those of you who are here for the first time, your life may change. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was a destiny-defining moment. I met Pastor Kae Kyung here, and then he invited me as a newcomer to the staff, the Chinese New Year lunch, and I just felt it was a divine appointment, and then I packed up everything and moved to Singapore uh, in 2015, and it's been such an honor um, to be a part of Covenant EFC, to get to know the people, to build the relationships, Um, like Pastor Kat says, people on the staff team just like to poke fun of me, it's true, it's fine, you know. Um, and it's been such an honor as well, sharing the pulpit here, preaching the Word of God to you with, like, the team of preachers here, and it's just been such an amazing honor. And like what Pastor KK said, uh, it would be an amazing opportunity to continue. In my heart, I suppose, there will always be a place in my heart for this church, for Covenant EFC, and to do partnerships and whatever that may look like, you know, um, So yeah, it's been such an honor. And and as as I'm closing off my season here at Covenant EFC, the text I am presented with today is 1 Samuel chapter 31. And not to spoil it for you, but Saul dies. That's it. And I think, oh, Lord, why am I preaching this sermon? Saul dies. Are you trying to give me a message? And as much as this for me today and this season is the end of a season and a beginning of a new one, I felt as if as I was studying this passage, the Bible would be like to me a mirror. And as I looked at this passage, it served as a mirror and as a warning, especially as I reflect on my season in ministry And as I look forward to the next season, I pray that as we look at 1 Samuel 31, the Word of God would be to you like a mirror as well, showing us who we are and giving us warnings in the soul. So I pray that as we look into this passage, God would speak to us. And let me pray, and then we're going to get into 1 Samuel 31. Save me from me. Save me from me. Let, let's pray, then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that there would be just a revelation of your word, a prophetic burden here today, that as, as your word goes out, it would accomplish what you have purposed and planned in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1936 and 1939 was the Spanish Civil War. And there was one of the generals, Emilio Mola Vidal, a nationalist during the Spanish Civil War. And as he was coming and attacking Madrid, he had what was called four army columns ready to attack Madrid. But within its capital, he had something called the fifth column, And the intent of the fifth column was undermining the loyalist government from within. The cardinal technique of the fifth column was to infiltrate sympathizers into the entire fabric of the nation under attack, and particularly into positions of policy decisions and national defense. With such key posts, the fifth column activists exploit the fears of a people— by spreading rumors and misinformation, as well as by employing more standard techniques of espionage and sabotage. Essentially, the four columns were external attack. The fifth column in the Spanish Civil War was the attack from within, the infiltration and the attack from within, the fifth column. And when I look at our lives today, the the Christian life, I think the enemy wants to attack us on multiple fronts, But one of the ways I believe he wants to bring us down or destroy us is very much like the fifth column. Infiltrating our hearts, tempting us in our desires, and bringing us down from within. And as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 31, this is the end result of Saul. This is the end result of King Saul. This is where he ends up. And I pray that as we look at his life, it would serve to us as a warning and a mirror that God, if there is a fifth column in me, help me to be aware of that so that I could live victoriously. But before we go into 1 Samuel 31, let me just give you a background of what's happening. In chapter 28, verse 4, the Philistines get ready for war. In chapter 28, verse 4, the Israelites set up camp at Gilboa. They get ready to respond to the impending military attack from the Philistines. And then Saul sees the Philistines, and he is terrified. So what does he do? He seeks God. God, what do I do? God doesn't answer. And we learned that he went to seek the witch of Endor 1 Samuel 28 verse 8, and he goes to the witch of Endor saying, cast out of the ground the soul or the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel comes up, and Samuel then prophesies towards Saul, saying, this day you and your sons will all be dead. The same thing he said earlier, prophesies of Saul's failure. And now we see in 1 Samuel 31, Saul facing the Philistines, Saul facing the Philistines. So if you have your Bible with you, you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Okay? It says this, chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus... Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled when the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night. And took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And fasted seven days. Well, that is the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, historically, 1 and 2 Samuel were considered one book. So technically, the story doesn't really end here but it continues on in 2 Samuel with the rise of King David. But since we're preaching through 1 Samuel, this is the end for our journey here, the death of King Saul. And when you look at the book of 1 Samuel, you see this parallelism. At the very beginning, you see Eli, the wicked priest, and his sons die, the fall of Eli and his sons, and the rise of Samuel the prophet. Now at the end of 1 Samuel, We see the end of Saul, the end of Saul's life, and the death of his sons, and the rise of King David. We see this in 1 Samuel. And as we look at 1 Samuel 31, let me just point out some key aspects and some key things of how Saul ends his tragic life. It's not just tragic for Saul, but also for his family and the nation of Israel. We see the Philistines kill Saul's three sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. We know that Jonathan was a godly man, a good friend to King David. Just as Samuel had prophesied, Saul and his three sons have died. We also see that Saul was badly wounded by a Philistine archer. Saul falls on his own sword and dies because he knows that if he does not kill himself, if he becomes a prisoner of war in the ancient Near East, his body will be mutilated and tortured. And so he falls on his own sword and dies. Then we see the Israelites abandoning their cities. Philistines cut off Saul's head, strip off his armor, and place it in the temple of their idol, Ashtoreth. Back in those days, whenever they fought wars, it was not just a military battle, but to them to see and understand whose God was greater. And so for the Philistines, this is not just a military victory, it's a spiritual victory. Our God, Ashtoreth, is greater than the God of Yahweh, or at least they would seem to interpret it with the death of King Saul. And finally, we see the valiant men take Saul's body along with his three sons and they burn them. Saul's bones are buried under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh. So if we came to the end of our lives, if we had some sort of time machine and we could look forward into the future and we saw that this is what the last chapter of our life looked like what would we do what would we think isn't this tragic yes who thinks it's tragic okay three people wonderful okay no one else thinks it's tragic no worries it's so sad and but when I read about the end of Saul's life, I can't help but think and ask the questions of how Saul had started his life. In One Samuel 10 and 11, we see, in 1 Samuel 10 verse 1, "Saul is anointed by the prophet of the day, Samuel. The godly prophet of the day obeyed God in saying, "God has chosen you, Saul, to be the king of Israel." This was legitimate. Some people think, well, Saul was destined to fall. Saul had it written in his life. He was meant to fall. I don't know. When I look at 1 Samuel 10 and 11, it seemed he had such a great start, beginning with the anointing by Samuel. We see 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, the Spirit of God came upon Saul. After he was anointed, it said the Spirit of God had come upon Saul. And when the Spirit of God had come upon Saul, it said that Saul's heart was changed, and he prophesied alongside the other prophets. And the meaning of this was that it authenticated Samuel's anointing. It was to show a charismatic authentication that God has indeed chosen Saul. Look at the Spirit of God upon Saul and look at him prophesying, God has chosen this man. Whatever we say about Saul, we cannot deny that God chose him. We cannot deny the Spirit of God came upon him and we cannot deny that he prophesied. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 10 verses 14 to 16, after he gets anointed by Samuel to be the next king, after he prophesies, after he gets touched... Wouldn't you want to tell the whole world? Wouldn't you want to post it all on your social media handles, on Instagram, on Facebook? Guess what, everybody? I'm the new king, yo. Hello? He speaks with his uncle. And when he speaks with his uncle, because Saul's looking for his donkeys, when he speaks with his uncle, he doesn't mention a word. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, uncle, uncle, guess what happened? Samuel just anointed me as king. Guess what? I'm going to be the next king. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't say anything. So it tells me at least Saul at this point has a temperament of humility and modesty by being able to keep quiet about such big news. Wouldn't you can't wait to tell someone that kind of news? If you're the new CEO of your company, if you were the new richest person, God has anointed you to be, I don't know, the highest ranking official in some kind of position, wouldn't you want to tell someone? Maybe you wouldn't, but... Saul kept it in. He didn't say anything. It shows a sense of modesty. Saul has military victory over the Ammonites in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And how he wins the battle, it literally says in 1 Samuel chapter 11 the Spirit of God had rushed upon Saul when he heard the words by the Ammonites. So it's like the Spirit of God came over Saul and he was like, let's go. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut it in pieces, and sent throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, "Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be with his oxen." Meaning, you better join me and fight this war; otherwise, you're going to end up like this. You see this courage and this gumption that came because the spirit again, the spirit of God was upon Saul, and he won this victory and you see Saul actually being compassionate towards his critics and gives glory to God for his initial victory he gives glory to God for his initial victory when Saul first became king the people who said who is this guy that who should be king over us how huh? who is he now that Saul has had his first public victory people are like who are those people that criticize Saul get him here and instead of Saul saying, let's kill them, Saul said, no, no one will die today. I will not go after my critics. Let them live, because today we, God has given us a victory. Now, did Saul have a good start? If you saw a king like this, anointed by God, moving in the... Encounters in the power of God and, you know, humble and, and victorious and giving glory to God in his military victory but showing compassion to his critics. Wouldn't you look and think, what a great leader. What a great leader. And that's what I would think. But then who knew 42 years later when we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 31? It was such a different kind of ending to Saul's life. So by looking at 1 Samuel 31 and seeing the way Saul began his life, I just want to draw three key principles for us that I hope that we can apply in being aware of finishing well. And the first one is this. Starting well does not guarantee finishing well. Starting well does not guarantee finishing well. And I've got this little formula for us. Anointing plus spiritual encounters plus prophesying plus initial humility plus initial military victory plus soul's compassion. It doesn't automatically equal obedience and faithfulness in the long run. It doesn't automatically mean that I'm going to finish well. Why? Because the human heart is depraved and broken. With the same heart, we can be intimate with God, have an encounter with God, be near God. But in the very next moment, we could be drawn away by the lusts of the flesh. We could be drawn away by the anger of the soul. With the same mouth that gives praise to God is the same mouth that deceives and curses. Just because we start well does not guarantee we finish well because the heart is deceiving. There is nothing automatic about our Christian life. There is nothing automatic about our Christian life. Now, I pray that you would have God encounters. I praise God that I've had wonderful God encounters. You know, times in church, times at conferences, times at camps, times by myself. There are these wonderful moments of God encounters. And I hope and pray that you would always continually have God encounters. But it would be foolish to think, ah, because I have had this one God encounter, I'm set for life. I will never stray from God ever again. I will never again turn away from God. They are wonderful and they encourage the heart, but it doesn't guarantee our continued obedience and faithfulness to God. And when I look at the life of King Saul, it just awakens me to the reality of the deceptiveness of the human heart. And so what it tells me is these encounters with God, meeting God, they are critical and they are fundamental, but at the same time, constantly having a posture of, God, I want to approach you with sober judgment. So what is critical then in the Christian life is reflection, God, help me to know what's going on. Sure, I had a wonderful time at church or I had a wonderful time at this conference or this camp, but God, today, what's going on? And some of us might know that experience. We meet God at a camp or a conference, but then a week later, two weeks later, we go back to our normal life as if nothing had happened. It's the fickleness of the heart. So what do we do when our heart is so fickle? You know, John Wesley, who was like this powerhouse for God, daily he had... With his friends, this thing called the 22 questions. Him and his friends, they would ask each other 22 questions. Did the Bible come alive in you today? You know, have you been false or misleading? Have you sh- tried to bring glory to yourself that was not honest? You know, are there any sins that you want to confess? Him and his friends asked each other that every single day, 22 questions. And John Wesley was so serious with his walk with God that every hour... He rated his fire for God. 10.30, my fire for God, 3 out of 10. 11.30, my fire for God, 5 out of 10. 12.30, my fire for God, 7 out of 10. (laughs) I don't know, but it showed how seriously he reflected and he took his heart before God. And I pray that we would develop habits like that in the same spirit. You know, uh, over the past 10 years now, I can't believe it, 10 years since I've been in ministry, one of the decisions I made when I got into ministry was on the first day of the week, before it was a Monday, now I do it on the Tuesday, I have what I would call my most important meeting. And in that most important meeting, I would fast breakfast, I would just do a coffee, I would fast breakfast, and I would journal, read the Bible, reflect, and just ask the Holy Spirit to take stock of my life, and if there's anything I need to confess or deal with. And I thank God for that. Already I have such a long list of things that God wants to deal with. Imagine if I didn't do that at all. And it's these little patterns that help us know, okay, God, I know that you called me for this. I've had this spiritual encounter. I've had this kind of experience, but I need to continue to keep going with you. I want to put patterns in my life, just like John Wesley did. So I continue walking with you, God. What patterns do you want to start establishing today? is the question I have. What patterns do we want to start establishing? The second key principle I draw from Saul's life, especially when we look at how he ends in chapter 31, is this. The downward path begins with a small step. The downward path begins with a small step. We see in Saul's life, it wasn't something so obviously wrong that he did. But it was the small, minute steps that eventually led him down to his destruction. It starts with 1 Samuel chapter 13. Samuel says to Saul, Wait for me at Gilgal. Don't offer the sacrifice until I come. Saul sees the Philistines coming, he sees men running away, he sees his army leaving. And because he's so anxious, He quickly goes and offers the offering, the sacrifice, that Samuel was meant to offer. It began with that. One small step. Samuel said to Saul, you've done a wicked thing here. Then we see in Saul's life, God tells Saul, I want you to completely destroy the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15. So what does Saul do? He keeps King Agag alive, and he takes all the good spoil for himself. And Samuel goes to Saul, what have you done? He's like, I've done what you've told me. I did what God said. And Samuel's like, no, you didn't. You only obeyed partially another small step towards the downward path. He obeyed partially to God. Then later we see in 1 Samuel 18, they said, oh, Saul his thousands, but David his tens of thousands after David had defeated Goliath. And then we see Saul's heart being possessed by jealousy and envy. Another step towards the downward path. And later on, Saul tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him, spends the rest of his life hunting David, to the point it got so bad that Saul killed 85 priests of God and Nob because he believed they were helping David. That's how serious his downward path had gone. And then we see him approaching the witch of Endor And now, here it is, in 1 Samuel 31, the end of his life. The downward path begins with a small step. And we see this throughout Scripture, even in King David's life. In 2 Samuel, since we're not preaching it here, I'm just going to spoil it for you, okay? The entire book of 1 Samuel, David is so holy. First half of 2 Samuel, David is so perfect, everything is so perfect, until it says this. In the season where kings go out to war, David remained in his palace. David stayed at home. And it was then that because David stayed at home, he was walking on his roof. And lo and behold, who does he see but Bathsheba bathing? And that led to a downward path. It began not with him walking on the top of his palace. It began with him not going to war. The downward path begins with a small step. We see it also in the life of Joshua. When the Israelites finally entered the promised land. And God's promises are fulfilled to Abraham. You'll enter a land filled with milk and honey. And everyone's like, yeah, they didn't just hear about the prophecy. They were living the prophecy. They defeated the Canaanites, entered the promised land. But you will see in the distribution of land. What did the Israelites do when they were strong? It says that the Israelites did not fully drive out the Canaanites, but kept them as forced laborers. And then in Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2, tribe after tribe, they keep the Canaanites as forced laborers. And then one generation later, the Israelites are no longer worshiping Yahweh because these forced laborers have turned the hearts of the Israelites away from Yahweh, away from God. The downward path begins with a small step. Daniel Kalender, who's the uh, leader of Christ for All Nations, an evangelistic movement uh, reaching millions, literally millions in Africa, started by Reinhard Bonnke, in his book Slaying Dragons, he tells this story. He says he's not very interested in going to the hairdresser. He's not very interested in going to the hairdresser. You know, for him, going to a hairdresser is just go in and go out, make it as short, as fast as possible. I have the same attitude. I just want to get it over and done with, you know. And he was saying, that, that was always his attitude going to the hairdresser, never really cared about it. And then one time he went to a hairdresser and his hairdresser was actually quite attractive. And then they struck up a nice conversation. And he actually enjoyed going to the hairdresser that day. Daniel is married with kids. So then he goes again, and he goes again, and he goes again. And then he finds himself, I'm looking forward to going to the hairdresser because I'm going to see that attractive hairdresser who I enjoy talking to. And then he says in his book, Slay and Dragons, as soon as he realized that he felt that way, he called up the hairdresser and said, I'm canceling my appointment. I'm canceling my appointment. And I think he's someone who realizes the wisdom of the downward path begins with a small step. So then for us today, what small steps are we making towards a downward path? And what small steps do we need to change? What is that phone call to the hairdresser that we need to make? Because in Saul's life, we see it here at the end of his life. These downward steps, this partial obedience, this jealousy and envy led him to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Finally, is this, greater than the enemy without is the enemy within. Greater than the enemy without is the enemy within. This is the fifth column. You know, we read in 1 Samuel 31 that it's the Philistines that had killed Saul. The Philistines had come and they killed Saul. But in reality, I think it's not the Philistines that actually killed him. It was actually the fifth column, the enemy within that led Saul to where he was. That was his greater enemy. What was Saul's fifth column? All the inner things that really took him down. Just a few, just to name a few: self-glory, fear of man, jealousy, self-glory. We see in one Samuel fifteen twelve. It says. Saul has gone to Carmel where he has set up a monument in his own honor. So somehow after he became king, he became concerned, obsessed with self-glory. How others see me. When he had sinned, 1 Samuel 15.30, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Still make sure I get some glory out of this. He became consumed with his own glory, reputation, adulation, admiration. He became consumed by that. Fear of man, which is very related to self-glory. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-four. When Saul had sinned and didn't kill the Amalekites completely, he tells Samuel, I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. I was scared of what people thought of me. And throughout Saul's life, that's what you see him concerned about, the fear of man. Jealousy. And envy. When another person was praised more higher than he was, David, he couldn't handle it. Because his whole entire identity was wrapped up in how highly people saw him. He became addicted to it. Jealousy and envy towards David. Now, we may not relate to killing 85 priests. Imagine if you killed 85 pastors. You wouldn't do it, right? Okay, I'm pretty sure that's a no. Even though no one said anything, okay? I'm pretty sure no one here would be like, I'm going to kill 85 pastors, okay? I'm sure Saul would have said the same thing at the beginning of his life. I'm not saying you guys ever will. But the point is, we may not relate to that. We may not relate to wanting to kill David. We may not relate to that. But I'll tell you what we can relate to. We can relate to feeling jealous. When someone else is praised higher than we are. We can relate to the fear of man, wanting to please people. We can relate to self-glory, image management, reputation, especially saving face. Whatever I can to look good and to be praised by others. Things that may not seem too harmful because they are so common, but can be exploited by the enemy to eventually lead to our downfall. And that's what happened with King Saul. What lies beneath the waterline? What happens in the area of our lives that no one can see? So then my question is, as we come to a close, what is it for us? What are the generational patterns? What are the fears? What are the wounds? What are the thought patterns? What are the lusts of the heart? What are the desires unmet? What are the things that can pull you left, right, and center that has the power to tempt you and to eventually possess and take over you? The jealousy, like Saul, he was overtaken by jealousy. And for us to be aware of what they might be, these patterns, behavioral patterns, thinking patterns, that's why the Bible is like a mirror. As we see it, God, help me to be aware of it. So today, three things for us as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 31, and in particular, the life of King Saul. Firstly, starting well does not guarantee finishing well. Secondly, a downward path begins with a small step. And finally, greater than the enemy without is the enemy within. And I pray that we would take our life seriously. I wonder if Saul, at the beginning of his life, in chapter 10 and 11, if he somehow was transported, let's just say miraculously transported, to chapter 31, to the end of his life, is Saul as a 30-year-old man, that's when he became king, saw the way that he died and what he did. If he could just see it as if it was a movie. I wonder what he would have changed in his life if he saw how his life would end in chapter 31. I wonder what changes he would have made and what things he would have been more aware of, and paid attention to. And I pray that for us, just like me, as I was studying this passage, I treated it as if God was giving me a warning. If I could be transported to the end of my life and what it looks like, what are the alterations, decisions, small things that I need to change now so that, God, I could end victoriously for you, But I want to say this in closing. It's not just work hard and just be good. God has given us the Holy Spirit for us to depend on and lean on. He enlightens our eyes. He shows us things. He heals us. I wonder what would happen if Saul would call out to God's spirit more. God, would you touch me again? God, would you change me again? God, would you continually change me? I would also wonder what happened if Saul would trust God's grace and compassion. He repented for the sake of repenting, not just repenting for the sake of looking good, like a public show or public stunt, publicity stunt. David also sinned and did some really bad things. He killed Bathsheba's husband. But when Saul repented, he said to Samuel, I've sinned, but make me look good in front of other people. When David sinned in Psalms 51, He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. David fell into the grace and compassion of God. Saul, even at his final moment, was only concerned about, will I win this battle or not? Why not fall into the grace and compassion of God that is so ready to meet us where we are? And finally, cultivating a lifestyle of repentance. Cultivating a lifestyle of repentance meaning God, search my heart, search my heart today and see if there be any wicked way in me. And I pray that for us in our lives, you know, some of us here, there might be just, ah, there is that phone call I need to make, the hairdresser, something, that decision to stop that step in the downward path. For others, it's creating a patterned lifestyle. And for others, it's just falling into the grace and mercy Of God. So as the worship team comes up, let me just pray for us as we come to a close. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace, for your goodness and your kindness. Father, I pray for all of us who are here today, Lord. I pray that your Spirit would fill us. And for those who are sitting here today, if in your heart you know that there are some small steps that you are making towards the downward path, small little things that you're doing, thoughts, patterns, behaviours, things you are entertaining, sins that you're flirting with. And if that's you, but today you're saying, God, I don't want to take a step towards a downward path. I want to take a step towards God's path. Help me to know what I need to change. And you know in your heart what you need to change. You know it. You see it in your mind's eye right now. You see it. It's so clear a thing you need to get rid of a habit you need to kick thoughts stop to be entertained sins to stop floating with and if that's you today and you want to say god i want to make a step towards god's path with all eyes closed i just want to see your hand if you could just raise your hand i want to pray for you i see your hands i see your hands i see your hands others raise your hand so i can see it i see your hands Others, raise your hand so I can see, I see, I see I see a lot of hands. Others, any others? And when you raise your hand, I hope that you are making a commitment to God, saying, God, yeah, all right, I've got to draw the line here. Flirting with sin is not, maybe you're not burned right now, but I know if you keep going down that path, small little steps will lead you towards 1 Samuel 31. Father I pray for everyone who raised their hands Lord God I just pray that your hand will be upon them your grace will be upon them and that your spirit would fill them and that you would empower them to walk and make steps towards God's path Lord I pray that you will open our eyes to see the things that we are doing that is leading us towards a downward path that we may not even know of and God so I pray that you will enlighten our eyes Holy Spirit so that we live dependent and victorious in you, in Jesus' name. And for others here, you may relate to God, I just need to fall into the grace and compassion of God. I have made some mistakes, and I need to fall into the grace and compassion of God. And friends, I just want to say the grace of God, nothing is too big for God's grace that it cannot handle. So if that's you and you're saying, God, today I need to fall into your grace and compassion. Nothing is too big that I've done that is too big that your grace and mercy and compassion and kindness cannot handle. With all eyes closed, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand and I want to pray for you as we come to a close. Anyone? Okay, I see your hands. I see your hands. Anyone else? I see your hands. Anyone else? Father, I pray for all those who raise their hands, Lord. May they find your grace and compassion. And in the name of Jesus, may your grace and compassion speak truth and life. That it will silence every lie of the enemy. It will heal the heart. It would flood our souls with your love and grace and mercy, God. We know and believe that there is nothing your grace and compassion cannot handle. So God, we thank you so much. For your presence, your goodness, and your kindness, may your name be lifted up high and glorified. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Let's continue in the spirit of worship as we reflect on the words of the song. Change my heart, O God. Change my heart, O. Change my heart Can I invite us to just quietly stand? And so right now, church, would you raise up your hand and receive God's benediction in Jude 24 and thirty twenty-five? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're glad you had spent some time listening to God's Word and we hope that the message has ministered to you. Should you require more assistance, kindly call 6892-6811 or you can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.